Hello and welcome to Food to Go, the podcast brought to you by New Food. I am the editor of New Food, Joshua Minchin. I'm joined to my left, as ever, by Grace Geller. Grace, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Am I always to your left when we record this? Uh, no, you're not, no. Um, I don't know if I said that. You are always with me, but not necessarily to my left. Yeah, well, it's lovely to be here for our Easter special. Easter special, yes. Um, not just a long weekend in the UK and Europe. No, there's so much more to it and a lot of it is food focused. Yes, it is. Um, Alongside, I'd say, Christmas, it is one of the best food times of the year, isn't it? Is this because of your love of lamb? You're going to spoil what we've got coming for the listeners, but yes, I do love lamb, chocolate, two of my favourite things, not together obviously, but combined. Um, it's a very important festival for a lot of people, in all seriousness, it's a really, really important time of year for yeah. a lot of different people, um, lots of different religions, not necessarily Easter, obviously Passover usually falls at a similar time of year as well, mm-hmm. um, so it's really important, sort of Ramadan, so it's a very, very important time of year for a lot of people. Um, We've got some other specials planned later in the year, haven't we, for some other really important festivals. But we are focusing on Easter for this particular episode. We are. And I think Easter is a time where people kind of are able to spend time with their family. And a lot of people do that through eating food. So I've noticed in the supermarkets recently, there are a lot of Easter offerings already out. Yeah, Easter, it does, I I don't know about you, but maybe I'm going to feel a bit like I'm getting a bit old. I feel like Easter wasn't as marketing hit like it wasn't marketed it, Christmas has always been crazy right mm. it's always been yeah. food, I'm talking about food and drink now when you go shopping mm-hmm. come in the November it's Christmas stuff everywhere it's you like Christmas, Christmas earlier Christmas, maybe mid October Christmas actually, no, Halloween. not for food but for Christmas 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 you get these sort of the wine deals etc I think Easter in the last few years supermarkets have really upped it when it comes to marketing what do you, you know think? what I've noticed it for bakery Specifically, kind of the bakery section of the supermarket just has so many options. What I will say is the hot cross I bun game. I literally knew you were about to say that. I tell you what, the hot cross bun game has been upped. I have seen some questionable flavours out there. Oh, give it a go though, honestly. Last year, um, I had some lovely salted caramel blonde hot cross buns. They were sensational. Really? I actually froze a pack and I had my last one a couple of weeks ago. There's a little. I don't really agree with eating hot cross buns all year round, so I think... Did you find it at the bottom of your freezer? What's this? Yeah, thing? literally, that's what happened. Our freezer actually broke. It defrosted, so, I mean, needs must, innit? It was a, wasn't exactly a great trial to do that. Um, I'm not one for eating hot cross buns all year round. I think hot cross buns are... See, I, we always have a packet of hot cross buns. Do you? Yeah, we actually do. For those that don't know, I don't think hot cross buns are universal, so if they're not... Um, are they a British thing? I think British, I think you get them in the US as well. Europe, again, if you're listening and you love hot cross bun in Europe, then do write in. I've not seen them. I lived in Germany, I didn't see them at Easter time. They're kind of like um, fruit cakes, aren't they? Like quite yeah. bready. Yeah. With currants in. What's the other, what's something that's like it? Tea cakes. Tea cakes, yeah. Like a tea cake with a, a cross in the middle. A cross what, on, what's the, that on made the top, of? yeah. It's just like um, pastry, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. They're delicious. See, I eat them, but I don't know what they're made Yeah, they're delicious. Um, and. They're sort of traditionally just bready with some, with some, um, like you say, currency, like fruit, dried fruit. But you get all sorts now. Cheese and caramelised onion. They do savoury ones. They do, yeah. I was more talking about the sweet ones. I've seen an apple pie and custard one. I bought some red velvet hot cross buns yesterday. Was that, did you, not, tried, not tried them yet. Oh. Not tried them yet. Red velvet with white chocolate and dark chocolate chips. See, I can imagine that being quite rich. Yeah, but I'm quite, I do like rich food though, so. We could say I'm quite rich. Yeah, but I am quite rich. Um... <laughs> So, yeah, I know what you mean. Big bakery game being upped. Mm-hmm. Um, there is lamb everywhere. 
And we're going to discuss Music's it. my ears. Yeah, and me. We're going to discuss this in just a second. It is lambing season. Well, it's not lambing. It's lambing season. Lambs being born. But um, why that reflects in the lamb that we see, we, I, I, we, we're not quite sure. We're going to ask an expert on that. We've also got a chocolate expert later in the pod because we both agreed. Cannot have an Easter special without chocolate. Rightly or wrongly, we're a food podcast. Mm. Can't have a can't have an, without, an Easter app without chocolate, can you? But we've gone down a slightly different avenue when it comes to chocolate. It's not just the mainstream chocolate that you probably are thinking of. So it was a really great discussion and you should be looking forward to hearing it because I really enjoyed it. You should indeed. On chocolate, Grace, Easter eggs, how old too old? Do you get Easter eggs still? I, I do. And I've been buying mini eggs for the last... Am I allowed to say a brand name? Yeah, not the BBC. <laughs> I've been buying mini eggs for the last month. As I... soon as they hit the shelves, I was, I was buying them. Are they not year-round mini eggs? No. I love a mini egg. Absolutely. It's when you open the bag and they smell. I think it's vanilla. Mm, I do. do I, I tell you what, not, not particularly partial to a cream egg. See, this is bad, and I don't know what you're going to say to this. I bite the top off, eat the inside, and leave the rest. No, no, I, I, when I do eat a cream egg, that's what I do. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I say leave it. I don't waste it. I give it to somebody else who'll be happy to eat my leftover cream egg, but I don't know what it... I think you, they're just so sickly. They're very sickly. Um... I was all, we were always bought Easter eggs as children, and uh, recently, my parents have stopped buying an Easter egg. Oh, how do you feel? That's adulthood. That is adulthood. I feel like apron strings have been cut, do you know what I mean? That is like, you're off into the big bad world. My dad once, this is a long story, but I'll wrap it up quickly. When all of the Easter eggs were discounted after Easter, <laughs> he bought, no joke, a crate of 40 <laughs> Easter eggs. They were sat in the house for months and he just worked his way through every single yes, one. Yes, get it. That is the kind of bargain hunter we like to hear on Easter go. No food waste. Should set no my dad up with waste. a chat with Jamie Crummy. We should. Well, is he one of these people that also goes like a Christmas card shopping in January? Christmas wrapping paper shopping in January. Really? But the thing is... Just loves a bargain business. Yeah, can't but you can't, <laughs> you can't blame him. You can't, you can't. Um, I think we've offered off quite a while, haven't we? So, I don't think he's going to be happy if he hears this podcast I've exposed his 48 <laughs> buying, but... His habits. His habits. <laughs> like we'll see the market, we'll see him coming. <laughs> Raise the prices. Um, very special interview up next. One of my favourite on food to go. I'll let Grace tell you who we spoke to. We spoke to Phil Stocker from the National Sheep Association and, as Josh said, it was a great chat, really insightful and covered so much ground. Let's hear what we're about to say. Phil, hi, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's great that you can join us on this podcast today and we're really excited to speak about a little bit about what you're doing um, with the sheep industry. So for anyone who doesn't know, can you explain about what the National Sheep Association does? Yeah, absolutely. The National Sheep Association is a charitable company and we run as a membership organisation across the whole of the UK. We basically, um, you know, represent, uh, listen to, uh, support sheep farmers across yeah, the whole of the UK. Phil, I'll, I want to delve into what the NSA sort of, how it represents farmers across the entire United Kingdom. It's a big space. It's very diverse. I'm sure that farmers in Wales or the Highlands have very different concerns to the farmers, for example, down here in Kent. I'm actually looking at some sheep right now between us uh-huh. and M25, you'll be pleased to know. So are there any concerns that those farmers come to you with that are, I suppose, consistent, repeated, no matter where in the country they are? 
Yeah, there are actually. I mean, there's a, a number of uh, fairly consistent um, concerns. We are we're a national organisation, as I've already said, and we're a, a sheep farmers organisation. Um, we've got a democratic structure through a, a series of uh, nine regional committees, and then a, a UK. Uh, policy and technical committee and a board and we listen to as many people's views as we possibly can there's definitely um, regional variances in terms of what's uh, on people's minds at, at, at different times but there's definitely some consistencies one of the big ones i would say is uh, the reputation of our, of our industry the fact that um, so often sheep farmers feel that they're under the cosh or being criticized uh, either for a high carbon footprint or or, or, or just from uh, you know the, the, the people, uh, the public who uh, are against eating meat, um, you know. So our reputation and the fact that um, our industry is all all built on uh, sustainability and reputation is something that is uh, it comes up on a regular basis. So that's a very broad thing. Um, uh, uh, other really practical things such as. Um, sheep worrying by dogs again that's a, a another constant issue that's being raised by people across the country it's usually more in regions with high um levels of urban um activity or population or areas of the country where um where you get a lot of um access to the countryside but again it's an ongoing problem that just doesn't seem to go away so um yeah there's um yeah a lot of issues going on at, on at the moment really and um yeah, we're, we're all about listening to our members and trying to defend them. Um, you know, we can't defend the indefensible. And sometimes we it's really good and healthy for us to challenge ourselves and think of ways that we can we can do better. But um, yeah, and we've got a, a really good group of um, farmers out there. Sheep farmers generally are, are good people that want to do the right thing. And um, yeah, we're, we're here to look after them and represent them and challenge them where necessary. You touched on it a little bit there, Phil, but what are some common misconceptions that you as a national voice would really like to correct and how would you go about doing that? Well, I mean, again, a number, I would say, you know, first there for many, many years, I would say that there's been this assumption that um, sheep farming is inefficient. And I think if you look at it purely on a, uh, an input and output um, level, um, it's not made the changes uh, it's not done the same sorts of things that the pig and the poultry industry or even the arable um, industry has done you know it's it's remained very traditional and for many years it's been viewed as a, a bit backwards because of that but actually um you know in this more modern world i guess where we're looking at um, uh, multifunctional activities and being more holistic in our thinking you know i think sheep farming is seen as being um uh, efficient in a slightly different way you know it's uh it's not just producing food it's producing a great countryside as well it's involved with producing habitats that are good for for wildlife um you, you know it's not involved with really intensive uh, practices uh, inherently it's it's uh, it's good for welfare sheep have got still uh, very free range and natural conditions within which to live so as we start to move towards looking at things in a more holistic manner i think we are now arriving at a position where sheep farming is seen as being efficient but in a slightly different way uh, that would be one thing the other one that uh, we've dealt with regularly recently is that sheep farming is bad for uh, the climate um, and that most of that is around methane emissions but um, again i would uh, i would uh, um, I, I would suggest that um agriculture and sheep farming has been an easy target for people that have been uh, uh, that want to see the, the 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 climate and the environment prove 
and uh, you know, methane emissions from animals that um, consume largely grass, I think, is fairly um, is uh, is part of a natural cycle. You know, the the big problem, in my view, with um, uh, carbon emissions um, is very much around the release of fossil fuels. Uh, into the atmosphere from sources that have been stored deep in the earth for you know thousands and millions of years really and what's been going on with largely herbivores it, ruminants sheep and cattle that are eating predominantly grass is that uh, is part of a, a natural gaseous cycle that's been going on for a long long time now it's taken us a long time to um to try to explain that we're not there yet but um you know that's been another really ongoing um I- I- issue for us um, and then the other thing, I, I mean, I mean, there's some big societal challenges at the moment, public challenges at the moment around climate change and, and the environment, but also nature. You know, there's a, 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 um, a strong interest in the importance of nature recovery. And um, sheep farming is largely um, a, 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 an activity that is, uh, we would say it's um, land sharing. You know, we're producing high quality, good protein food. Um, largely from grass. Um, Britain is very much a pastoral nation. We're renowned for our green, pleasant and, and grassland type um, type countryside. And, um, you know, sheep farming is, um, is actually uh, maintaining that land. And at the same time, if we get it right, creating great habitats for ground nesting birds and invertebrates. And of course, the dung that comes from the sheep is great for invertebrates and invertebrates feed, um, you know, fledgling chicks. It's all part of, a again, a natural ecological cycle. And if we get that balance right between um, uh, producing food in a sensitive way alongside um, maintaining and looking after the countryside, again, in a really sensitive way, you know, I do believe that we can have it all in in terms of um, optimizing food production and optimizing uh, environmental outcomes as well. So that's another one that I think we've been trying to defend um, uh, the, the industry on. And then again, you come back to really practical things, such as we've had um, issues over the last few years from um, animal welfare campaign groups who have spread the message that shearing sheep is um, cruel. That's a very practical thing, but we've had to defend, we've had to work hard to defend the industry against those sorts of claims. Yeah, yeah we all shear our sheep uh, for two reasons, really. One is to harvest the wool, and although wool hasn't got monetary value that it deserves at the moment, it's, a, it's probably one of the most sustainable and renewable fibers on earth. And we shear the sheep largely for welfare reasons so that um, during the summer and the spring and the summer as the temperatures start to to rise we take that thick woolly coat off and um, and we also reduce the um, the risk for uh, parasites for blowflies and maggots to get in and do damage to the sheep so we do it for welfare reasons and yet we've had to defend the industry um, from um, campaigners who have tried to spread the message that um, wool uh, and shearing sheep is is cruel Phil that's such interesting point you made there um about england's green and pleasant land because you do always picture a flock of sheep in it don't you if you ask any primary school child to, to, to draw a painting of a um, or paint a picture of, of english countryside they'll probably put some sheep in how do you reconnect consumers with their food then because as you mentioned there's some pretty large misconceptions there i'm wondering how you reconnect people that live in the city like myself with with the the lamb or the, the mutton even that, that, that they eat because their situation doesn't seem very sustainable at the moment in terms of the relationship. No, again, it's a, it is a real challenge. I would still say that one of the best um, 
uh, options we've got is the fact that sheep are out there in the countryside. They're so visible. You know, when people go out for a walk or people that are lucky enough to live in the countryside, they look out their windows or drive to work and they see sheep all over the place. Um, and and so at least they're visible, whereas so many other livestock sectors now are, are behind closed doors, if you like. And I think the challenge for them is is greater in a way, but it's, an, it's, it's not easy. But I think um, that whole story about the fact that, um, you know, sheep, um, are out there in our countryside, keeping it green, keeping it, it pleasant if we get the job right, um, you know, sustaining some really um, strong and desirable and, and friendly rural communities. And without those communities, we'd see a lot of the infrastructure fall apart. Those village shops, particularly in the more remote and fragile re- re- regions of Britain, we'd see the uh, the shops close and the churches and the and the schools close. Those, that farming community is there 365 days of the year, and they keep that infrastructure and the local garages as well open when um, tourists start to and visitors start to get back out into the countryside. So the fact they were so visible, um, in a way, gives us an opportunity because we are seen. But it's a complicated story, and I think you know we work hard as a as, a, as an organisation, um, you know, representing sheep farmers and many others do to to try and explain, um, you know, the the role of sheep and and in looking after our countryside, but also providing us with great food. I would also say that the uh, you know one of the best ways of doing this is the you know is through that growth that we've seen over the last few years in. Uh, in uh, in farm shops and farmers markets and and direct sales you know that really gives uh, farmers and butchers and others that really understand the uh, the situation a chance to have a discussion um with with them um, with the buying public and talk to them about it the more open we can be the better in my mind and the fact that we've still got um many sheep sold through livestock markets and those livestock markets are usually open for the public to walk through again in some of the uh, the nicest the most attractive um, villages and, and, and areas of the country, countryside, the more open we can be, the more transparent we can be, um, the, 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 the better chance we've got in my mind. And the same is the case with um, uh, with lamb and mutton as it is with wool to get people to understand the story of wool and the sustainability um, story behind wool is, um, is uh, yeah, it's what we've got to do. And um, we work hard at it, but we've got to do a lot more. Phil, I want to get on to Easter and lambing in a moment. I'm aware that we've come straight out of the trap with some really, really big questions for you. Um, let me ask what I hope is a, is a, is a light one. Where has mutton gone? Because I, I hardly see mutton on supermarket shelves in particular. It doesn't seem like it's available for the everyday consumer. I know some cultures eat a lot more mutton than, than others. Um, why is that? Why, why, why has that decline happened? Do you know, it's a really interesting, uh, it's a very interesting question. That And uh, mutton, I think, to some extent, has still got a little bit of a negative hangover from, um, you know, decades ago, the war years, in many cases, where, um, you know, people were being fed uh, canned mutton. Um, and it was, at the time, it was a very fatty meat. It was very, um, it was tough. Um, and I think it's still got some negative perceptions about it. But there's been a lot of work, you know, really starting with some work that the uh, well, the then Prince of Wales did um, around an initiative called Mutton Renaissance. And we've followed that work forward at the NSA with a number of mutton initiatives. Uh, mutton is, is some of the, um, the the best quality meat that you can possibly get, actually. And if it's slow cooked, it's not um, it's not something that necessarily fits with a lot of very quick, fast uh, cooking techniques. 
is uh, most reliably cook. You can cook it quickly and it can be very good, but most reliably, it's uh, one of those products that needs to be uh, slow cooked. It's, um, it's fantastic in things like tagines um, and even very slow roasts, you know, pot roasts. Um, it's one of the most nutrient dense and, uh, and and tasty meats you could ever imagine. As slow cooked, it can be really, really tender as well. Um, it's be, it, it is at the moment a bit of a niche product, and you don't, you never see it in supermarkets. And I guess what's one of the reasons why um, it's not become mainstream. But you will get it in farm shops and a number of specialist um, at the farm direct retailers and through farmers markets. And if you can get it, if it's been um, it needs to be treated in a quality in a quality manner. You know, I think the industry has moved very much towards um, older sheep, killing older sheep, um, and selling them into a, if you like, a lower value, poorer quality market. And if they're not finished properly, if they're not uh, fed properly, if they haven't got the right quality of finish on them, if they're not um, hung properly um, and butchered really well, then they will feed into that low value catering market. It might go into a pies. Um, and you know, it, you know, it's a bit sad actually. But for many, many years, a lot of our older sheep went into um, those outlets that you could argue that needed to feed people the most nutritious food possible. They went into schools and hospitals, um, you know, and they were almost lost. They were, they, they were, they were, um, yeah, under under the radar, if you like. But increasingly, I think there is a, a market for uh, quality mutton, and um, you know, there are a growing number of farmers who are starting to grow. Um, older sheep lambs, not young lambs, but maybe keeping lambs until they're two, two and a half years of age are linked sometimes with um, conservation grazing or some high nature value sites or even older ewes, um, you know, rather than just get rid of them when they've come to the end of their life, you know, actually um, keep them on the farm, feed them well, get some finish on them, make sure that they're killed well and treated well. And uh, you know, if you, if, you, um, if you know what you're doing with it, it can be some of the most fantastic, tasty and nutrient dense meat that you could that you could imagine i will attest to the tastiness of mutton phil um i had a lovely mutton curry a few weeks ago it's absolutely gorgeous um absolutely it's, it's good meat let's get on to lambing and easter because certainly in, in europe lambing season is approaching um i'm sure by the time this goes out it will be upon us why is lamb so popular at Easter? Is it simply because it coincides in that time of year? Or are there some other traditions at play there? I'm aware that you're probably not a food historian, so you may not be the best person to ask. But as the next best thing, why do we eat lamb at Easter? It's a funny thing, isn't it, really? And I, I, I have to say, I don't really know the answer to that. I mean, I think we do, you know, lamb has become a really traditional di- dish to eat at Easter time. I do wonder whether that's because we talk about we've got lambs on the ground and we talk about lamb an awful lot um it's seen as being uh, you know easter is seen as seen as being a time of new birth i guess um you know both in religious circles but also um uh you know in terms of uh, the whole countryside um the natural world waking up i guess um and that's what's happening on shoot farms too you know easter time is a time when um you know lots of our farmers here are lambing or have got young lambs in the fields and we talk about lamb and i guess we've ended up just um uh, partly celebrating that by um connecting that with eating lamb at, at, at easter it's a bit um uh strange if you like because the most um, the normal time the time when most of our lamb comes to market would be um very late summer 
and um, or during the middle of summer, into late summer and into the autumn. That's where most of our lambs are born during, uh, you know, the springtime and through Easter. Um, so most would come to market during the, the late summer and autumn. Um, but having said that, you know, we've got a really diverse sector in the UK. You know, this is not a... Um, there's not a one-size-fits-all structure to the sheep industry. It's not a homogenous industry. Uh, we've got farms that lamb as early as um, January, and we've got sheep farms that lamb as late as May. Um, we've got uh, farms in the uplands and the lowlands. Uh, those different climates and different grass types uh, grow lambs at different um, speeds, if you like. And some of those later maturing breeds and uh, poor quality grass will just grow those lambs on nice and slowly. And all of that, all of that means that we end up with lamb coming to the market um, throughout the year. We can and we do pre present lambs or provide lambs to the market 12 months of the year, although there are seasonal variations. So, you know, we've got good British quality lamb coming, still coming onto the market. Uh, it will be somewhere in a region of 12 months old. Um, at Easter time, it will be lambs that were born a year ago will come to the market um, uh, during this Easter. And there are some farmers that will have lambed really early in January and they'll push their lambs on so that you get really young um, young lambs come in to hit that uh, new season market as well. Um, again, what's happened over the last few years, I guess, is because there's been such a trend to eat lamb um, during at, at Easter time, and because our supermarkets have uh, got behind that and promoted that, really, um, we've ended up um, with an awful lot of New Zealand lamb coming onto, onto our market uh, during that, that, that period of time as well. And supermarkets have regularly um, discounted that lamb, um, put it on promotion and and, uh, and 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 got it out there. And that's uh, the, the one good thing. I mean, there are, there are positives and negatives about that, really. When we see big volumes or historically, when we've seen big, big volumes of New Zealand lamb come in, it usually uh, drags our prices uh, backwards. It usually upsets the supply and demand balance. And it usually has a, a negative impact on our market. But you could argue that it keeps lamb on um, on the menu of many, many people. It, uh, it, it usually is made very affordable at Easter and it, it keeps people eating it. And that you could argue that's a, a, a very good thing. And um, whilst, you know, we would often see New Zealand lamb coming in as a, as a threat to us, our export markets for lamb going into other countries around the world is really valuable as well. So over the years, you know, we've ended up with, a, I suppose, a fairly organic or natural um, trade balance in terms of British farmers serving our domestic market here, you know, having sometimes to compete with imports coming in, but also benefiting from uh, export demand in other parts of the, the world, predominantly still in, in the European Union, I would say. Um, but um, yeah, it's something that's happened naturally over um over a long period of time and um yeah i'm looking forward to easter and uh, again lots of lamb coming onto the marketplace as well phil in some research i've done before recording this podcast i found that lamb consumption in the uk actually peaks at easter time so with lamb being imported from new zealand would you say it's almost swings and roundabouts with the imports and exports coming to the uk then is it something that new zealand's helping us out while we're helping other countries out at other times of year yeah, I think you could argue that, actually. Um, it's no surprise to me that, um, you know, consumption peaks during that lambing period. And uh, to be honest, you know, we would probably struggle unless we employed other strategies, such as, um, you know, a, a, an increased number of farmers uh, lambing later and really t trying to target that Easter market. But the way things are at the moment, we would probably st struggle to um, satisfy, um, you know, all the demand. So you could argue that the way things are, um, the, the New Zealand 
um, it, it imports help us out a little bit. If they didn't come, the industry would adapt to fill, to, to fill that gap. There's no doubt about that. But yeah, I mean, it's all part of the balance, really. And uh, yeah, New Zealand, without that New Zealand lamb coming in at the moment, we would struggle to um, satisfy uh, current demand. And there's no doubt as well that, um, you know, our exports, m not exclusively, but mainly our exports during the peak times of our production, allow us to, uh, if you like, cream off the surface of our production and place that into other high quality, high value markets around the world. So we see that um, seasonal sort of peak and trough in production and lambs come into market and we fill the, the trough periods through importing lambs and we um, overcome the peak periods by creaming that surface off and, and, and exporting that product. So it all does work really quite well. And it also uh, creates um, competition in a marketplace that helps to keep our prices um, better than they otherwise, otherwise would be, I guess. So it's very difficult to record or write anything nowadays without mentioning the word Brexit. Um, I'm going to now anyway. One of the benefits, I suppose, of Brexit, Brexit that was advertised was a cheap lamb all round. We'll all be able to have legs of lamb from, from New Zealand, from, from the UK, um, for a lot cheaper than we have been in the past. I want to ask you, has that come to fruition? And is it even something that the industry wants? Do you want to see lamb prices come down? Or is it fairly priced? No, absolutely not. I think it's a real, um, it, it's a real flawed argument in my mind. And uh, you, you know, th this country has for far too long followed a, a cheap uh, food policy. And, uh, you know, I know that it, 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 at the outset, it can sound quite attractive to um, get food on people's plates um, as cheaply as possible. But usually there's a hidden cost somewhere. And, um, you know, I'm very much an advocate of um, recovering the, the true cost of the true value of food and, and getting people to understand, um, you know, the value of food as well. There would have been a time when um, food would have been, um, you know, maybe what twenty percent or even more of people's um, household expenditure. Now it's well below ten percent. I understand, um, and uh, although that allows people to spend their money on other things, cars, holidays, whatever, it does devalue food, and it it it, it means that people don't um, consider its true importance and and the um, the value that it gives us, both in terms of uh, nutrition, but also um, the value in terms of uh, you know where that food comes from and, and, and what it does to our our countryside and uh, again the the upkeep of um, of those rural communities here you know we we could some pe some people would say that um, food security is all about being a wealthy country and being able to have trade deals and import food from wherever we want around the the world but I would say that that is a fairly shallow form of food security and we do need a um, you know, a strong, consistent and robust level of food production here as part of a, a food um, a, a food security um, strategy. Um, it, it was um, yeah, any argument that suggests that um, we could import um, lower cost um, legs of lamb in to feed our population. And yet we could focus all of our production on high value export markets in in, in, Asia's, in Asia and, and, and areas of um, increasing wealth around the world is, um, is, is, is absolutely not right to me. That does nothing to um, uh, build our relationship and the connections between farmers and, uh, and our consumers here. It, um, it, it, it really uh, contributes to making food a simple commodity 
rather than a, um, a product that, again, is highly valuable to us and it's got provenance and connections. And it just stops people understanding where their food is coming from and how it's being produced. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely an advocate of, um, of uh, a domestic uh, a strong domestic food production and a domestic food supply chain, even though that I would accept that a level of um, exports and imports is uh, inevitable and probably quite healthy. Phil, does that mean then that lamb is priced accurately at the moment or would you see it rise still? Because it is one of the most expensive meats out there. I mean, for many people, myself included, a leg of lamb is a real, it's a real treat, it's a real rarity. Um, which mm-hmm. direction do you see? I mean, should we be paying more still? Yeah, I do actually. I think it's fairly, um, it's quite fairly priced at the moment. I think the pricing at the moment is fairly relative to the cost of production. Um, and again, um, we 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 could, as an industry, have followed um, the route that a lot of other uh, food production sectors, farming sectors, have gone in in the UK and um, intensified, you know, kept our sheep indoors. Um, you know, reduce the, the cost of labor, um, you know, really tried to intensify and reduce the cost of production, um, partly through to um, a level of stubbornness, maybe, and partly due to the fact that sheep are naturally so suited to being out, out, outdoors. Um, our industry has maintained its very traditional um, uh, traditional roots. And, uh, but, but that traditional way of producing food does come with a cost. You know, it means that, you know, someone, uh, you know, one person can't look after as many sheep if they're um, spread across the, a, a thousand acres of land or hectares of land or whatever, as they can if they've got a set of buildings and they can drive up and down with a machine and, and feed them. And, you know, it, it's, again, it's all about that true cost accounting, really, where um, you, you have to try and look at the value um of the food, we have to try and look at the value of the food we're eating uh, through more than just the food itself, but all the other aspects that surround food production. It's a really difficult message, and that's one of the areas of complexity that um, is always going to be hard to explain to consumers, particularly at a time of uh, increased uh, inflation at the moment, and lots of people are trying to cut their costs. But I would, my argument would be very much that. Um, people should be looking at the true value um, buying quality products and maybe just adjusting their diets adjusting their menu portions um, accordingly to try and reduce costs you know um, I still think that there's a lot of gains that can be made through uh, scratch cooking and uh, uh, cooking with um, uh, raw ingredients if you like rather than partly prepared or prepared or ready meals Um, you know and you know, to cook a, a joint of lamb and have a joint of lamb now lasting for three or four days and use it in different dishes from roast through to, um, you know, maybe, uh, you know, ending up with, um, you know, a curry in, in, in three days time or whatever is still one of the most economic um, and efficient ways of, um, of feeding ourselves. Phil, bringing this back to Easter quickly for a second, do you know if any other European countries um, if there's a trend in eating lamb at this time of year, or do you think it's mostly in the UK? That's a great question, actually. I was going to ask you that as well, Phil, because I, I, I feel like it's a very UK tradition, but um, hopefully you can shed some light. Yeah, well, I think it is. You know, Again, I'm not an expert in that topic, but I think it probably is a, a, a very much a, um, a, a UK or British um, tradition, actually. I don't sense it elsewhere in Europe, and I do think that they tend to... Um, 
usually lamb a little bit later in Europe, and they usually tend to eat a, a lot of lamb uh, during um, the summer months when they have lots of um, family gatherings and, 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 and big barbecues and, and those sorts of things. You know, it is still very much a, um, uh, a meat of celebration, if you like. I mean, that's the way we treat it for Easter, I guess. It's a, it's a, a product that we, uh, you know, we, we, we connect with um, celebrations. But I, I think in a lot of other European countries, particularly um, Southern European countries, um, it would be during the summer months when they would um, have lots of fam family celebrations. We can't ignore the importance of um, um, the Muslim population and their fairly high level of consumption of, uh, of, of, of sheep meat as well, lamb and mutton. And again, their festivals occur at various times throughout the year. So within the Muslim population, um, the consumption trends would vary hugely in line with their um, Muslim festivals. And that's a growing area of market. It's a really important market for um, British sheep producers, both here and, uh, and, and in export markets too. Absolutely, Phil. It's a, it's a really important point. I know that as well, for example, in the uh, Passover celebration, which usually occurs around Easter time, lamb, lamb plays an important role. So you're, you're spot on there. It's important to a lot of different people. Um, we're running out of time. I know we've kept you for the best part of half an hour, so we will release you back into your important work. <laughs> One thing that you could ask, and we'll say the UK government, since you're UK-based, but this could apply, I suppose, across the board, whether you're listening in Europe or the US, or indeed Asia. One thing regulators could do to improve the the lives the the business the welfare of sheep farmers around the world what would it be if you were if you were president of the world for a day what would you do if i was president of the world today i think um uh, it would be around um trying to get some honesty and some truth and some accuracy in some of the metrics that we're using i mean the this whole issue of climate change i think is absolutely crucial for society i mean climate change has got to be one of the the biggest challenges um facing us uh, globally and i just I, I absolutely do not believe that um ruminants and the emissions of methane uh, are a, a, a major contributing factor when they're being fed on grass in the way that um, sheep production is practiced here in the UK. I think if you go uh, into some other countries around the world and you look at some of the feedlot systems where uh, ruminants are being fed, um, you know, grains and proteins that are being harvested and um, produced with fertilizers and they're being shipped around the world, that's a very different situation. But when you think about the way that a grass grows here, mainly in Britain, with very, very, very little use of um, any fertilizers or input, um, most grass grows without very much more than um, sunshine and rain and some soil nutrients. Um, it's a, an environment that I've said already, we, you know, we all appreciate and love. It's an environment that if we get it right, it produces a great home for wildlife. And almost as a byproduct, we get, um, we produce this wonderful meat from it, you know, and, um, and, and, and if, as I say, those animals have been eating grass, that um, methane emissions, I, I believe, is all part of a, a gaseous cycle that has been going on for thousands and thousands of, of years. Yes, we can make improvements. Yes, we can uh, reduce waste and losses. And uh, you know, for us in the sheep industry, one of the big areas to focus on there, I think, is around improving health uh, of our sheep. And if we improve health, we'll reduce losses and we'll reduce waste and we'll optimize rather than um, if you like, maximize our, our, our production and our, and our efficiencies. But it would be about accurate measurements for um, the sustainability metrics around, around, around the way that we produce food. And if I think if we, I think if we could do that, uh, land production would come out, um, if not right at the top, it would be very, very close to the top.
So Phil, I said it was my last question, but I lied. Um, would that then put you in the camp of supporting eco labels on food products? Um, uh, possibly, it's not something that, that that's uh, that's not something that I would shy away from or be worried about if I was um, confident that the metrics were accurate. Um, at the moment, I think um, because our carbon footprint in um, work and our carbon footprint in tools have not been holistic and they've not captured everything within um, a, a food uh, supply chain, um, they are absolutely not accurate. You know, as an example, um, you know, from some of the very early um, carbon footprint and work that was done, lamb came out with a very, very high carbon footprint. But it was only when people realized that um, the whole cycle wasn't taken into account and the feed wasn't being taken into account. And the, the fact that um, grass and the pasture that sheep feed on is fantastic in terms of sequestering locking up and holding carbon within the soil so it was only one element of a, a carbon cycle that was being taken into account so unless you can have really accurate and full um, uh, carbon footprinting tools it until that point it would be a mistake to go down any road of um, eco labeling if we could get to a level of accuracy it's not something i would shy away from Phil, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. We'll stop our line of questioning now, but it's been really great speaking to you. Um, Easter isn't just about chocolate and lamb plays such an important role, not just at this time of year, but all year round in the UK. So thank you very much for being on this podcast with me and Josh. It's a pleasure. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. And thank you. What did you think, Grace? I thought Phil was an amazing speaker. He was so knowledgeable about the industry, but I suppose that's because he's in constant contact with sheep farmers, hearing exactly what their concerns are. Yeah, so many different bits to pick up on there. Um, let's start with Easter. I don't know why, but there's a big disconnect in my mind between, or there was, between it being lambing season. Mm. I don't know why, I just, in my head, I sort of thought, and I know it's not the case, but I just thought, oh, that means that lamb's available. Of course it's not. They're just born in the spring, and yeah. then they mature in the summer yeah. and in the autumn. So... That, I suppose, I mean, if I'd have actually thought about it, I'd have realised that. But it was it was interesting to hear because, as as Phil said, we, I say we, we in the UK need a bit of help to fulfil that Easter requirement because our lambs aren't mature yet. We get a lot of help from New Zealand and, and vice versa. That was interesting. But I think it was interesting that Phil said it wasn't necessarily a bad thing that we get help from New Zealand. Like some people might think that New Zealand lamb is going to kind of overtake British lamb and people will prefer to buy something a bit cheaper because obviously there's food inflation at the moment so not everybody can afford to spend money on expensive cuts of meat as we know lamb isn't the cheapest um but what he was saying about mutton that was really interesting as well because you can't get that in British supermarkets I've never been in one and seen one seen it being sold no I don't know about other parts of the world again as we always say write in if you have mutton uh a, a, a mutton abundance um i love mutton as well See, I've, tried never, it. I've never tried it's fantastic. it it's great it's Phil it? said cook it slowly chicken the curry or stew it's fantastic another slow cooker mention well listen it'll do well it'll do well um he is right as well it has got that poor like poverty kind of connotation um wrongly because it's an excellent piece of meat and no meat should ever be looked down upon no food should be looked down upon as a poor person's food um, so do you think this is all from the war then? This I don't think it's all from the war. I think a lot of it's from the war. I think, or the Second World War, we should say. I think it was always associated with a food that uh, poorer people ate. But then again, that there is a disconnect there, isn't there? Because so was pork belly. And now that's 
a hugely trendy cut of meat. So mm. is brisket. These are all cheap cuts of meat that poorer people would eat and cook slowly. Anything you've got to cook slowly is usually something that the poorer people would get because it's, I suppose, viewed as not a good cut of meat, even though that couldn't be further from the truth. So I thought that was interesting. Really interesting and important that Phil mentioned. Obviously, we're focused on Easter in this episode. We will focus on other um, celebrations for other cultures throughout the year. Um, important that Phil mentioned that um, the Muslim population is a large consumer of lamb. I mentioned as well my little Passover fact. Mm-hmm. I know that Passover lambs are a really important part of, of, of the Passover celebration for the Jewish faith. And I actually wonder if that's where the Easter bit comes in. So much of Easter is informed by Passover. I think it's a combination of that. And I do think you're right with lambs being born at this time of year. Maybe there is just that connotation of this happens. It's new life, isn't it? New life, spring, yeah. The symbolism. Absolutely. Um, So yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Some, what will no doubt be controversial points made by Phil, but you do have to respect, whether you agree with him or you don't, you have to respect his reasoning. He was reasoned throughout in terms of, first of all, the sustainability argument about perhaps me getting an unfair rap and second of all about cost i thought that in particular was really compelling it's as he said it's a difficult message at the moment to say to people actually you know what your food should even probably cost more um Mm. i wouldn't like to be the one that tells the average customer in a uk supermarket whether that be the uk europe or indeed the us where food is high across the board um particularly probably the uk but as he says perhaps it would connect us a little bit more closer to the meat that we eat and as I said, maybe meat, we, we have meat every, we, we know this, we have meat every day. Perhaps it is that you buy like a lamb, you have some of that on a roast on a Sunday, some on a Monday, some on a Tuesday, and that's it. Do you think this is why there's perhaps a bad rep around lamb farmers or sheep farmers? He said that people are quite stuck in their ways and that's a misconception he wants to get rid of. With food inflation sort of inadvertently affecting kind of all foods, consumers might not be too happy that the meat that was always being farmed is now going up in price and it's noticeable as well in shops. Yeah, I don't, I'm not necessarily sure it's a sheep problem. I, I know Phil probably sees it that way because that's he's involved with the sheep farming community and the sheep farming industry. I think it's a meat problem. I think it's a farming problem. We've spoken about on our, on our Sustainable Agriculture podcast recently that farmers are viewed in a certain way as, as backwards kind of no tech, very resistant to change. And as we know, that is categorically untrue. Mm-hmm. But that seems to be the way that some corners of society view the farming industry. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed that chat. I certainly love a bit of lamb at Easter. I'm looking I forward do. to it. I think lamb might be number one meat for me. Favourite roast dinner meat? You're going lamb. I am, lamb and mint sauce. Yeah, I, it's a question that we debate often in the Minchin <laughs> household. I'll, I'll admit, we're very partial to a roast dinner. Um, there will, I'm sure, be a leg of lamb at Mr. Minchin's table Sunday. Are you looking forward to a bit of lamb drinking at Easter? Are you going to have some? Yeah, I look forward to a bit of lamb most weeks, to be honest. The sustainability argument that Phil mentioned, I think, is worth touching on. Mm. And his questioning of the metrics. Now, I, 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 I'm not one to comment on this. I, I don't know the metrics. Um, worth asking the question, though, I think. We do write off a lot on cows and ruminants in general, so that does include sheep. But cows are the most thought of. We write yeah. off a lot, don't we? Mm. I think Phil made a really interesting point about keeping like big chunks of land in the UK free for sheep farming. Because realistically, that is saving the land for generations to come. And there are a lot more kind of problematic things that go on in food producing than kind of farming of 
animals. Do you not agree? Yeah, the past. I mean, there, there's there's certainly people that know more about this than I do. But the pastoral nature of and, and the grazing that that ruminants do on land is good for it. Mm. Can sometimes even renew land as well. Really interesting to speak to Phil, get his perspective. I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more from the National Sheep Association on new food in due course. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, it was great speaking to him. He had so much insight. And as I said, he is the voice of so many farmers across the UK. So it's great to hear exactly what the industry's thinking. So Grace, we've handled one Easter tradition in terms of lamb. But as you have kept saying to me non-stop over the last few weeks while I've been busy organising this episode, we can't have an Easter special without some chocolate chat. You really make me sound like a chocolate enthusiast there, Josh, when I don't think you've seen me eat chocolate that much at all in the office. But for this podcast episode, we've got Jack Turrell on from Nomo. She's actually a brand manager and she gave us some really interesting insight in what it's like innovating in the free from category. I've been in the supermarket recently, I'm sure we all have, and we've seen how much chocolate is available at this time of year. And I think it's really interesting that people that go into the supermarket with food allergies they can't buy everything that people that don't have allergies have and they have to second guess everything they're opting for they have to check labels and double check everything so I think it's really great that we got Jack on the podcast to discuss what it's like innovating in quite a difficult sector yeah absolutely um it's a bit water water everywhere and not a drop to drink at the moment isn't it there's so much chocolate but it's not all available if you've got hypersensitivity and as you said, it really isn't easy to innovate in this space. You've got to get so much right in terms of flavour, texture, mouthfeel, all those good things, um, without some pretty important, I would say, ingredients. So it's a real challenge to get it right um, and to fulfil the needs and wishes, not just of hypersensitive consumers, but potentially of those without hypersensitivities as well, because you want your market to be as wide as possible. So I'm always really interested to speak to different producers and see how they overcome those challenges. And Jack's going to be no different. So yeah, let's hear what she had to say. Joining us now is Jack Tyrrell, who is a brand manager at the chocolate company Nomo. Hi, Jack. How are you? Thank you. It's great that you could join us today. And just to kick off the discussion, really, can you tell us why chocolate has become a food that is so heavily associated with Easter? Um, yeah, I think it's an interesting question. Um, I actually had to do some research myself. So, um, I mean, the sort of the background um, or the history, if you like, of of uh, chocolate and Easter um, sort of stems back to to Germany and France um, in the nineteenth century. Um, sort of eggs became a popular um, thing to give to people um, and then it sort of just evolved over time so I think Fry and Sons were actually the first uh, chocolate producer to create uh, chocolate Easter eggs um, and then it sort of evolved from there really um, and I think if you if you look at chocolate as, a, as an ingredient itself it's a very um, malleable ingredient it's quite interesting in that you can melt it down and then reshape it so it lends itself really perfectly um, for making Easter eggs. It certainly does, Jack. I know that Nomo's do things slightly differently to other chocolatiers, and I'll get onto that in just a second. First of all, must be a really busy time of year for you. Um, how does it compare to the rest of the year? I assume Christmas is a big, big period. Is Easter another sort of period of great stress and great challenge at Nomo, or is it is it pretty relaxed? Yeah, no, it's definitely a very busy period. So at the moment, we are launching our Easter 23 campaign whilst also developing our Easter 24 product. So it's a very busy time of year. And how do you deal with that? Do you, is, it, is it all hands on deck? Do you find, 
obviously you're the brand manager do you find yourself uh, doing more practical tasks do you get your hands dirty or um, are you equipped for, for for large volumes yeah no I'm I'm pretty much across everything day to day so it's quite a small team so I'm across everything from product innovation um, to marketing um, you know the social media stuff I kind of touch everything so yeah it's quite a busy period Josh mentioned Nomo being a slightly different chocolatier. Can you tell us what sets Nomo apart in supermarket shelves when it comes to Easter and I guess all year round? Yeah, sure. So Nomo is a vegan and free from chocolate brand. Uh, so we're unique in the market in that we are vegan and we're free from dairy, gluten, egg and nuts. Um, so that's really our USP. Um, we really want to make sure that we have a product um, for everybody. Um, so traditionally in the free from aisle, um, or traditionally free from consumers and vegan consumers have kind of been miss, miss have, have missed out. Um, so we really strive to make products that are um, vegan and free from, but also really recognisably mainstream um, products and flavour profiles. Jack, what ingredients do you use then to replace those 14 key allergens? Because I know that you don't include any of the 14 major allergens in your products. Um, how do you make your chocolate then? Uh, yeah, so the, the process is essentially um, the same. Um, we just substitute out our um, milk powder for a rice powder and we make our chocolate on site um, in our factory in Norfolk. So, yeah, the process is, is very similar, um, but it's the, it's the way that we, I guess, um, and the process that we undertake that is slightly different and, and the refinement of the, of the chocolate um, that makes our product you know, taste delicious and, and taste um, as close, if not better, than, than normal chocolate. I must say, Jack, I was lucky enough to try some of your chocolate at Christmas time. Um, I suppose I shouldn't really say this on a, on a neutral podcast, but it was one of the better alternative chocolates that I've tried, to be honest with you. I'm, I really, really enjoyed it. How do you recreate that taste? And I suppose almost as important, if not more important, when it comes to chocolate, that mouthfeel. I think you've really nailed that kind of luxurious melting feel in your mouth which a lot of alternative chocolates struggle with how do you get that aspect right um it's a yeah it's a good question um i think we do a lot of internal taste testing and we've got a really good team that um that has worked really hard on the recipe um so i think it's yeah it's a combination of the right ingredients um, the right balance of ingredients and and the right process really to 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 make it taste as good as it possibly can and that's what we really strive for at the You mentioned the factory where your chocolate is made. What steps does your company take to make sure that your chocolate is definitely free from all of the ingredients that you say it's free from? Yeah, so we as a business we take allergens extremely seriously. So throughout our entire supply chain um, we are sort of checking and doing all of those checks to make sure that you know not just us but also our suppliers um, have the correct procedures in place to make sure there's no cross-contamination. Um, we have risk assessments in place. We do testing. Um, so we, we, we do testing um, on our product once it's launched and we only release that product to market um, when we once we know that, you know, all of those tests have come back. So there's a lot of time and energy and resource and money that goes into making sure our product is, you know, safe for consumers as well. And so, sorry, do you test every single product then before it leaves to make sure that it, it yeah, hasn't got any of those major allergens? Yeah, we do. Obviously, you're very passionate about keeping your consumers safe, and that's admirable. Um, why test everything? 
is it a trust matter? Do you want to be absolutely crystal clear? And do you want consumers to be confident when they buy your product? Yeah, I think, yeah, that's exactly right. We need to make sure that, you know, everything that goes out um, to our consumers, you know, is um, adhering to our um, our claims and, and free from credentials. One more question from me, Jack, on this. Um, clearly, you operate all year round, not just an Easter egg company or indeed a Christmas chocolate company. How do you adapt your chocolate at Easter, do you have to adapt it? Um, is it difficult to mould into an egg, for example? These are all questions that, I don't know, I feel like they don't get asked to, again, air quotes, normal chocolatiers because we've just had Easter egg chocolates for so long, but is your chocolate as easy to mould into an egg shape? Um, is that a stupid question? Yeah, no, no, it's not, a, it's not a stupid question at all. No, uh, we use exactly the same recipe. It's just the process that um, that is different. Um, so. I'm not sure how, you know, I don't, I don't sort of work on that side in the factory, um, but my understanding is that it's sort of pumped through and, and spun into, into moulds. So essentially you have moulds um, that rotate around a spinner and, and the, the gravity, you know, transforms those into eggs or the, or the motion transforms those into eggs. So I'm probably not explaining that very well. <laughs> No, no, that's so interesting. I've actually always wanted to know how Easter eggs are made. It's just not something you really think about all year no, round. No, you know what? It? No, not at all. You go to the supermarket, you buy them, and you yeah. eat them. Um... <laughs> but no, that's been really fascinating. Um, just on a slightly more serious note, do you think that all free from and vegan chocolate should be explored by kind of every chocolate brand on the market, or is it something that's totally separate and should be investigated by experts like Novo? Experts, gracious. Experts. experts, nice. That was an accidental nice. pun, but I'll take it. I definitely think there is more that brands can do to make their products more inclusive. Um, I think from a customer standpoint, um, there's a lot of foods that are off limits. And I think that if brands can do more um, to make their food more inclusive, that can only be a good thing. Um, in saying that, I think there's a lot, you know, as I've mentioned before, there's a lot that goes into that. There's a lot of investment. There's a lot of time. Um, there's a lot of energy and also you've got to be able to stand by those claims at the end of the day and I think you have to have a really good company culture um, so at, at Nomo we are you know allergens is at the forefront of our thinking um, and we really care um, about making sure our product is free from those four ingredients um, so yeah I think from a consumer point of view um, definitely I think it's, it would be really it's really important for brands to be more inclusive but that has to be kind of underpinned, I guess, by a brand that you know really is passionate about that and really wants to to do that for consumers. This is supposed to be a lovely, fluffy Easter special, Jack. But I've, I can't help myself from getting some proper nitty gritty food safety questions. So I'm going to anyway. Um, you mentioned culture there, and that immediately leapt out at me. So often we hear from allergen experts and allergen advocates that trust is so important with a brand and, and like you say knowing that culture and knowing that everything's going to have been done the right way every stage of the process how do you get that across to your staff to your employees um is it a challenge is it through through storytelling is it through advocacy how do you ensure that every single person that works in your chocolate is acutely aware of the process and of the importance of, of getting it right because you can't have an off day can you if you work for Nomo? sorry you can't what sorry you can't you can't have an off day can you you can't make a mistake it can be really dangerous no no um, I think, you know, Kinetin has been going, you know, so Kinetin manufacture Nomo and Nomo is um, a Kinetin brand um, and Kinetin have a history in free from manufacture, particularly 
um, nut-free um, manufacture. So I think it's sort of it's really ingrained in 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 the culture at Kinetin. You know, everybody knows that when they send products up to the factory, that they you know if there's any doubt whatsoever, they have to make sure that that product goes to a separate room. Um, you know, everybody is very acutely aware of the importance of it. So I think it's just something that's kind of involved in the business, really. So it's a difficult one. It's a difficult question to answer. Um, let me take you back to ether time. Um, tell us about your new products. Is there anything exciting that we might be seeing on supermarket shelves from Nomo? Um, anything you're really, really pleased to shout about? Yeah, so we're really pleased this year. We've, we've done a redesign of our core eggs. So they've got a, a brand new look and feel. Um, we've managed to reduce our packaging um, by about 18%, um, which we're really happy about. Um, and in terms of flavour profiles, so um, we've got all our um, best-selling flavours um, in our core eggs. So we've got creamy chalk, um, caramel, uh, cookie dough. Um, we've, we've recently launched our caramelised biscuit bar um, exclusive to Sainsbury's. So we've got a caramelised biscuit egg and bar. Um, which has been flying off the shelves. Um, we've got an orange mini bunny. We've got a cookie dough bunny. We've got a great kids product, so product which is an egg and lolly. So loads of great things this year, which we're really happy about. I've actually seen the caramelised biscuit um, option in the supermarket near me, and I've been really wanting to try it, so I might actually go on my way home from work. Yeah, go and pick it up. Thank you, Jack, so much for joining us on this podcast. It would be wrong to do an Easter podcast without talking about chocolate, wouldn't it, Josh? It certainly would. So uh, you've fulfilled that requirement, Jazz. Thank you so much for coming on Food to Go. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. That was a treat, wasn't it, Grace? Bit of chocolate for any special. Bit of chocolate knowledge, yeah, I know. I think that's probably the most, well, my favourite topic we've discussed. Better than insects, in my opinion. Something more palatable. Not to dismiss Dr. Danaher, whose episode I thought was fabulous. And if one of my, As one of did our, I. That's not me shunning no, it. It's at one all. of our most popular, so do make sure you go back and listen to that. But yeah, slightly better, uh, more palatable for you yeah, at least. Plus, although we did mention some chocolate covered ants in the episode, so. No there was still chocolate in it. Um, no, I really enjoyed that. Different, a bit different, I thought, um, yeah. to obviously the usual chocolate fare that you get at Easter. The one thing that jumps out at me is they test every single product before they leave the factory no. that Falagens. I mean, that is as far as I understand, not commonplace. It just going to show how important trust is mm. when it comes to free from. I think that's amazing. I think it's great that there, it's not just Nomo that's out there with kind of free from chocolates and like vegan chocolates, but it's great that consumers know there is a brand they can go to and almost 100% trust. I know this is what Jack's told us, but if you're, if a company's claiming that every single product that comes out of their factory is tested, you would like to think that you can give it to either as a present for yourself or your children who have allergies and know that they're not going to be harmed by it. Have you tried free from chocolate before? I have actually, yeah. Have you? Yeah, a few times. I, I quite like, I'm not a massive chocolate eater, but oh, see, see I'm not a chocolate connoisseur, but I did, I did enjoy it, yeah. I see, I love chocolate. Um, I love like a really big chocolate hit. Do you know what I mean? Like a big square of chocolate or Easter, I love it. It's one of my favourite times of the year. What's your favourite type of chocolate? I don't you know what, I like just a plain old, just a plain bit of chocolate. Milk. Yeah. No, see, I'm a, I'm a, if, I, if I do go for chocolate, it will be dark chocolate with sea salt in it. I must admit, I like all types of chocolate, but white chocolate is my guilty pleasure. Do you know what I think was great that Jack was saying? That there isn't just one offering from Nomo. There is so many different options that people with 
uh, with allergies or people that are vegan can go for. It's not just, okay, so you can't eat mainstream chocolate, so here's like your alternative. There's so many different ones for them to choose from. There's a lot of products out there. Where do you stand on the whole, should everyone be doing this or is it a specialist job? I agree with Jack, you know, I do think it is a specialist job. I do as well. And I also think that ultimately it's very hard to recreate the taste because it's different. I mean, some free from chocolates I've tried are better than others, as I mentioned in the interview. Um, No Maze is a really good one, I will say. But it's still not the same, and that's fine. In what ways is it not the same? Which is not quite as. um, Creamy? It's not as creamy, and it's not as rich, but it is. A bit you get I often actually it's a bit deeper sometimes okay or it's, a di- it's just different it's a different type of taste mm-hmm. and that's fine it's equally as nice doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily mean that it's worse mm-hmm. the same goes for plant-based I'm talking about plant-based it's not always it's different and you have to accept that and celebrate it and um, so I'm not sure that the likes of I don't know Nestle or Cadbury can they can't recreate the taste you can't you can't recreate the taste of a dairy milk bar without milk <laughs> So, but I think I think the thing is with that, if Dairy Milk or Cadbury came out with a chocolate bar, everyone would be comparing it. To that's what I'm trying to say. Because everyone there would be more people so, yes, that yes. don't have food allergies that are trying it because of the brand name. And they'd think, well, this doesn't taste the same. And it would be more kind of, they're making it to replicate rather than to fill a gap in the market. Yes, exactly. Um, so I do think it's a specialist job. I think that if you're preparing free from food, You've got to be, as I said, you've got to be so on it, obviously. You've got to be so on it when you prepare food anyway. It's not not, not me to say that if you prepare any old food, you can have a day off. Mm. Um, it's a really specialist job. It requires specialist knowledge. It requires um, belief and advocacy in what you're doing mm. to ensure that everything's carried through properly. And, and also just knowledge of your target market. Yeah. What they want and their opinions on kind of what's already out there and what they yeah, want to change. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's not easy cooking for or preparing food that fits all those criteria. It's it's a, we should say that as well for the industry. It's a difficult task. It's one. It's a it's a um, honourable one and one that we should definitely be doing. But it's not easy. So yeah, I think leave it to leave it to the experts. Let specialist brands fill that fill that void. Jack mentioned that they use rice milk instead of dairy milk. How? Could you taste... Have you had rice milk outside of chocolate first? No, I must admit I haven't. Um, I haven't, so... I wouldn't say I could pick out the rice milk, but what I will say is I think that's probably a good thing. So the other alternative that I've tried often is coconut milk chocolate. Right, and there's obviously going to be a flavour It just there. tastes really like coconut, which is fine. It's not a bad taste, but... Are you not a bounty kind of person? No, I, I, I love it. God knows I love a bounty. Really? But, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was outraged by that story you wrote a few weeks back, <laughs> a few months back now. Can we plug it if it was a Christmas story? Yeah. You can, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was I was outraged by um, bounties being removed from celebrations. Um, no, it's more that you can't do a lot else with it because it does taste of coconut. So anything else you put with it, no matter how much your flavours are, mm. does it's ultimately still, a coconut it, chocolate. It tastes really coconutty, mm. yeah. Um, I must say that the rice milk chocolate is a lot subtler. You can't really taste, so it's a bit more malleable. Perhaps can, that's why they chose it. I'm, maybe. I'm assuming they tested various different options, and that was the one. You'd, you'd probably you'd expect so. Um, so, yeah, it's probably a little bit more of a blank canvas than like coconut chocolate is. You should try some. Have a few. On my way home from work. Yeah, yeah, yeah you should work. do it. You should do it. Well, as you say, Grace, you can't have any special about some chocolate. So um, I'm so glad that we managed to get Jack on the pod to discuss a different type of chocolate, but chocolate nonetheless. Um, thank you so much for tuning into the Easter special of Food to Go. 
we've got plenty more specials planned throughout the year for different celebrations so keep, I was going to say keep your ears, ears peeled which I've definitely said before on this pod um, desperate, desperately trying to get it into circulation yeah keep your eyes peeled keep your ears peeled um, for more Feed to Go specials thank you so much to Phil and to Jack for joining us um, don't forget you can catch all of the previous episodes of Feed to Go on our website you can get the entire library there you can also Get every single episode on SoundCloud, on Spotify, on Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back very, very soon. Um, we've got one on gut health next up, we guys. We do. A very exciting one on gut health where we actually debunk if probiotics are a myth or not. We do indeed. But you'll have to wait to find out. You do. You have to wait to find out. And I've been teasing this dairy conversation I've had for a while now for a few pods. Um, that is coming. We'll release it. We will release it. it. Yeah, we will. We will. Let the people have what they want. Um, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you